There's a consensus in America we've got to do something about illegal immigration. But should we stop virtually all immigration to this country? We'll ask an expert. Plus, will government intervention in the markets help our economy in the long run? This is Jerry Johnson Live from Crystal College. Join us as we look at today's news from the Christian worldview for Christ and culture. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. December 7, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. I have a dream. It depends upon what the meaning of the word is. And the people who knock these buildings down will hear all of us soon. We will not tire, we will not falter, and we will not fail. Welcome to Jerry Johnson Live. For the next hour, this is your place for relevant discussion of topics in the news and in our culture from a Christian perspective. Later in the show, we'll open the toll-free lines for your questions and comments. You may also email us at talk at jerryjohnsonlive.com. Now, here is Penna Dexter. I marched with you in the streets of Chicago. I fought for you in the Senate. And I will make it a top priority in my first year as President of the United States of America. That's Barack Obama addressing the annual convention of the National Council of La Raza in San Diego, California, pledging to support immigration reform, really amnesty for illegal immigrants. He's very clear on that. He's trying to distinguish himself from John McCain, who supported the same thing, but has now moved to a borders first position, which Barack Obama criticized before La Raza. Well, we talk a lot about uh, immigration on this program, illegal immigration. Of course, that word illegal pretty much does it for us. Uh, It really tells us how we ought to view this. Uh, We've got 12 to 20 million illegals in the country at this point. But another question is, what about immigration, period? Is immigration good for America? That seems to be the conventional wisdom that immigration has always been good for America. But we're going to bring on one of the nation's foremost experts on immigration. He's Mark Krikorian. He's been a guest before on the program. And his answer to this question about immigration, is it good for America, just might surprise you. So stay tuned for that. Well, President Bush made a speech on the economy. And, of course, that's all the news that you can really hear today and in recent days. He made a speech from the White House, and uh, he's talking about the economy. He says it's down, but not crippled. Our citizens are rightly concerned about the difficulties in the housing markets and high gasoline prices and the failure of the Democratic Congress to address these and other pressing issues. Yet despite the challenges we face, our economy has demonstrated remarkable resilience. He's trying to talk it up, and in a sense, there is some truth to this. I mean, in the news, it's all doom and gloom right now. And, of course, all of us are feeling the gas price rises and the other prices of food and other items. Uh, Some of us are not feeling uh, the problems in the housing market because we're settled in our homes and we're paying our mortgages. So, you know, my question for you, and you can give us a call just to talk about the economy. I know you've been doing that uh, with Dr. Creamer, 800-881-9270. But really, how are you feeling about the economy right now? Are you upset over it? Is it is it hurting you badly? Is it hitting you where it hurts? Or is it just sort of painful with regard to the higher prices of things that you're paying? Are you suffering greatly 
or just suffering a little from the economy. Again, the number is 800-881-9270. I will say that when uh, we come upon an election, it always seems that there are economic woes, and uh, the media definitely highlights them, and they become a campaign issue in every single presidential campaign. Well, on Capitol Hill, uh, there was testimony coming from the Federal Reserve Chairman, and one thing that's happening with regard to all these problems with the mortgage companies and the banks is that the Fed is getting a greater role. And uh, that's not always good, but it may be necessary. But Fed uh, Chairman Ben Bernanke summing up the problem about the economy. Here he is. The contraction in housing activity that began in 2006 and the associated deterioration in mortgage markets that became evident last year have led to sizable losses at financial institutions and a sharp tightening in overall credit conditions. One of those institutions is IndyMac Bank in uh, California. And uh, if you were watching the news, you saw the lines outside of the bank in Pasadena, people waiting in line to get their funds out of the bank. Now, uh, their money is supposed to be guaranteed, uh, guaranteed by the FDIC, but many of them were very nervous and very worried. Here's the story from AP correspondent Jacob Edelman from Los Angeles. People here generally understand that their money is insured in theory, but they're saying that they just can't really uh, relax. They, they don't feel secure unless they have that money in their pockets or, or in another bank. One woman said to me she doesn't know what's next, uh, whether she'll have to start keeping the money under her mattress. This uh, this problem with IndyMac Bank uh, could actually cost the Fed 4 to $8 billion, and it was in trouble. It's been in trouble. But uh, one senator, New York Senator Chuck Schumer, actually talked it down and could have been responsible for this run on the bank uh, because he made a statement in a letter, which he then leaked to the press, uh, calling uh, the really basically saying that a collapse uh, could cause a run on the bank. And that's exactly what happened. Here's Ben Bernanke, uh, head of the Fed. He said IndyMac Bank was a victim of the credit crunch. It was particularly uh, weighted down with low-quality mortgages, uh, subprime and other exotic mortgages, and those losses uh, created a, a capital hole that was, it was unable to fill. All right. We'd love to hear from you and to know uh, your complaints about the economy right now, if you have any. Or are you doing just fine, just feeling a little bit uh, of pain from the higher prices? I sure am feeling that. It's expensive to fill up the tank. Uh, but, you know, the kind of the Christian world view of this is that, and it's really a lesson for all of us, I think, and that is that we need to live below our means. Uh, not that this would uh, mitigate all of the problems or keep us from uh, having financial problems, because sometimes God uses those problems to cause us to depend on him. But I do think there's some wisdom in living below your means so that you have money to give to his kingdom and to his work, and uh, not to stretch yourself too thin in buying things, the things of this world, and sometimes you do end up in trouble. Uh, Of course, every personal situation is different, and God works with people through money uh, in various times in their life, and sometimes it's just a matter of learning to trust him. But, uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, we do want to hear from you on this. In fact, uh, let's go now to Bob and Terrell. He's got some thoughts on the economy. Bob, go ahead. Yes, Penna. Harry Reid said uh, that all was making us sick. All isn't making us sick. It's a Democrat-controlled Congress that is destroying America. And uh, the liberals are keeping Congress from uh, doing anything. What do, uh, does America think is uh, a president that's controlled by liberals? Uh, con- liberal. Uh, uh, you mean the people. next the next possible president? Yes, the next pro- Obama is controlled by liberal thinkers and so forth. What does America think uh, Obama's going to do when he's controlled by the liberals? 
Nothing. Well, you know, there are people in uh, the U.S. Congress right now that are actually worried about all this government stepping into things. Uh, we've talked uh, on the program, I believe uh, Dr. Creamer talked yesterday about Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, the two big mortgage companies that hold half the mortgages in the country. And, I mean, the government has to step in right now uh, because there are folks that are investing in those companies and uh, they need to be, uh, they need to feel secure and safe or we'll have a bigger problem problem than we have right now. Uh, But in a sense, you know, if this doesn't change and get to the point where the government's stake in this gets less and less in the future as this problem goes away, and perhaps uh, Freddie uh, Mac and Fannie Mae actually become smaller and broken up and privatized, which is what is sort of being promised right now uh, by the folks in government. If that doesn't happen, and it probably won't happen if we have a, a liberal president and a liberal-controlled Congress, you'll just have ongoing, more government control of all these financial industries. And along with a big uh, tax increase, it could signal just a a very different uh, economy than we have right now. And so that's what we're really facing here as we look at this. Well, also on another subject, uh, we've been hearing uh, from the candidates about Iraq. In fact, uh, John McCain at a town hall meeting in uh, Albuquerque said that he suggested that Barack Obama should have actually delayed this policy speech he made on Iraq until he's been there. I note that he's speaking today about his plans for Iraq and Afghanistan before he's even left, before he has talked to General Petraeus, before he has seen the progress in Iraq, and before he has set foot in Afghanistan for the first time. Uh, Senator McCain says that Barack Obama is actually setting policy on Iraq in a backward way. In my experience, fact-finding missions usually work best the other way around. First, you assess the facts on the ground, then you present a new strategy. Of course, Barack Obama made this policy speech, and it really doesn't sound like his position on Iraq is much different. Uh, We sort of had some hints in recent days that he might be talking to some of the military leaders and also observing when he goes to Iraq and maybe changing uh, his plan to withdraw all troops within 16 months. But the rhetoric was pretty pretty strong, and we're going to play some of those sound bites later in the program uh, to talk about whether or not what Barack Obama sees and finds out from his questioning and his investigation is even going to matter uh, with regard to his Iraq policy. Well, folks, uh, is all this government intervention, is this okay with you? Uh, Is this uh, bad economic news affecting your life to a great degree? That's the question on the table. But I also want to bring something else into the equation. And uh, this is a story that actually was sad. uh, But I actually believe that this person is uh, with his maker. He's with the Lord. And he's Tony Snow. Of course, he was White House press secretary. He's also been uh, a radio host and a television host and just an overall great guy. And uh, the news was uh, reported on Meet the Press on Sunday that he passed away. Of course, he, he finally, after his long battle with cancer, died. And uh, here's Tom Brokaw, who is sitting in for actually another broadcaster who died recently, Tim Russert, on Meet the Press. And uh, he's talking about Tony Snow and also playing a clip of an interview with the late Tim Russert. Former White House Press Secretary Tony Snow died yesterday. 
After a brave and inspirational battle against colon cancer, he's a very popular man. He appeared here on Meet the Press with our late Tim Russert in February of 2007, and he spoke about the administration and the job that he loved as press secretary. For seven years, you were host of Fox News Sunday. Do you like being on that side of the table or this side? <laughs> uh, you know what? This is the best job I've ever had. I, I, I love doing what you did, although I'm glad I'm not getting thumped by you in the ratings anymore. But uh, I really love this job. It's been a tough season for all of us here in Washington. Tony Snow, an elegant man, loved and respected by so many, dead at the age of 53. He was a graceful spokesman with a great taste for music. He had strong political views, but he had friends across the political spectrum in the city and beyond. He went out as he lived with great conviction and with great dignity. And his family is in our thoughts and prayers this morning. And here's some archive sound of Tony Snow. And uh, as we know, he died at age 53 after a long and courageous battle with uh, cancer. You know, he had his entire colon removed uh, after he was first diagnosed. So you knew it, it really had to be bad. And it was years that he continued to work uh, and also took the job as White House press secretary, which he said he loved. He had to leave that job because he said he really needed to go on the speaking circuit and earn money. Uh, I think he he, his cancer had returned, and he knew that he needed to provide for his family after he's gone. Of course, he loved his family. He was well-known for that. But here's some archive sound uh, of Tony Snow as White House press secretary saying goodbye to the press corps on September 12, 2007. This is when he had made that decision that he needed to go out and uh, actually just bring in some money for his family. But he said it had been an honor and a pleasure to be press secretary. Everybody talks about what a horrible job it is to brief the press. I love these briefings, and I'm really going to miss them. Excuse me. He was such a great encourager of people. I did meet him once, just briefly, and uh, he was giving sort of a, well, I called it a comedy routine at an event uh, that I was attending that the Alliance Defense Fund put on. He was really a talented guy. He had this sunny disposition. And uh, they say, you know, that religious Americans and conservatives are happier and if Tony Snow is an indicator of that, he was all of those. He was a strong believer, and he was a conservative, and he certainly was happy, and he tried to make other people happy. He really cared about other people, and I think he taught us a lot also about playing through the pain. Tony Snow, uh, a lot of Americans are going to miss him, and I am one of those. Well, ladies and gentlemen, next up, uh, when it comes to immigration, our next guest says that the real problem is not them, the immigrants, but us. He is Mark Krikorian of the Center for Immigration Studies. He'll join us next on Jerry Johnson Live. Criswell College is proud to present the new Mac at Night program. It's a Master of Arts in Counseling degree obtained by attending evening block classes. There are licensure and non-licensure options depending on your career goals. Mac at Night features some of the best professors in the field of Christian counseling, and all courses are biblically based. Expand your ministry or prepare for a doctorate. Criswell College makes it simple and convenient. All Mac at Night courses are scheduled with the working professional in mind. If you've got a full-time job, a busy lifestyle, or even raising a family, you're perfect for Mac at Night. 
Get your Master of Arts in Counseling at Criswell College with Mac at Night. Call 800-899-0012 or go to criswell.edu. That's 800-899-0012 or criswell.edu. Invest in God's work and yourself through this convenient program through the Criswell College. It's Mac at Night. See criswell.edu. That's criswell.edu. Listening to Jerry Johnson Live. Now here's Penna Dexter. If we're going to pass the legislation, we have to give the American people the confidence that we're not only securing our borders because of the issue of illegal immigration, but my friends, you know what's happening with the drug trafficking across our border, which is killing young Americans. That's John McCain. Again, he was at the La Raza National Council uh, meeting in San Diego. Of course, uh, immigration certainly is a campaign issue. Uh, but we have a different question than has been asked on the campaign trail. They're talking about uh, should we legalize illegals or should we protect the borders first? Our question, though, here is uh, should we even have immigration at all, legal or illegal? Uh, does immigration actually hurt the country right now? Are we the same country that has welcomed um, all the immigrants that have formed us? With us to discuss this is uh, Mark Krikorian. Of course, he's a frequent guest on Jerry Johnson Live. He is the grandson of Armenian immigrants. Immigrants. He's also executive director of the Center for Immigration Studies. He is a contributor to National Review and National Review Online, and he's got a new book out, The New Case Against Immigration, Both Legal and Illegal. Welcome, Mark. Thanks for joining me. Well, thanks for having me. Mark, uh, this is a uh, different concept. People have not been thinking about the fact that legal immigration uh, actually uh, even could be bad for America. In a sense, uh, you're saying, aren't you, that uh, it's not really the immigrants that are that different from those who came through Ellis Island. It's us that's different, correct? Yeah, I mean, that's kind of the punchline of my book, that um, the concerns people have about immigration uh, whether it's schools, security, uh, health care, the economy, whatever, don't really come from the fact that, or for, uh, don't come from the fact that the immigrants are all that different today than the past, even though they come from different countries, they're still very similar people. They're coming, however, to a very different country. Our country has changed dramatically. Um, you know, we're, we no longer have uh, a frontier. Our cities are industrialized. We have a post-industrial economy, a welfare state, uh, advances in technology mean that assimilation uh, and uh, security, for instance, uh, are much more complicated in the you know, smaller world that we inhabit today. So really my point is the onus is not on the immigrants. It's not even on us because there's no fault here in any respect. It's just that we've outgrown mass immigration. It's a fa- it was a phase very important to us, and it's now a phase that we have to leave in the past. Okay, a lot of us have said if only they would assimilate, and of course, again, the blame could be on them and us. Uh, they did assimilate at one time. We required it. Why don't we, or why can't we now? Well, there's two things about a modern society like ours that make assimilation much harder than before. The first is a good thing, cheap and easy travel and communications. Uh, you know, cheap uh, phone calls uh, abroad, uh, cheap airfare. Uh, that changes the whole dynamic of assimilation because the immigrants no longer really have to leave the old country behind. Uh, it's natural that they're going to want to keep a tie with uh, the country they came from. I mean, there's something wrong with you if you don't have some kind of sentimental sure. attachment. 
But in the old days, they were forced to cut that off, focus their attention here, just for practical reasons. Now they don't have to do that. And the other thing that modern societies have a problem with, with regard to immigration, is that the elites, in, we see this in Europe too, but our society as well, business elites, political elites, etc., lose the self-confidence in the value of their own culture and their own country that's necessary if you're going to demand that newcomers conform to your ways rather than you conforming to their ways. And so what happens is we've got bilingual education, multiculturalism, all of that, none of which is foisted on us by the immigrants, but all of which makes it much harder to successfully Americanize these newcomers. Mark Krikorian is with us. We're talking about immigration. And, you know, when you talk about this whole phenomenon, Mark, of globalization in the economy and these huge corporate uh, multinational corporations, their allegiance isn't really to one country. And it's to the point now where Americans cannot bring themselves to say that America is the greatest country on earth. And that really affects this, doesn't it? I mean, I'm even happy just to have Americans say, listen, I love America because it's my country, and I don't really care whether it's the greatest country on earth or not. I mean, uh, you know, and there's a real, it's not a problem in with ordinary Americans, Republican or Democrat. This isn't even a right-left thing. The problem is with our elites, with business leaders, union leaders, academics, journalists, religious leaders, at the, the people who are the top or, uh, you know, near the top of the institutions of our society, really are uh, very often what I call post-American. They're not anti-American necessarily, but they've moved beyond America. They think of themselves as citizens of the world. And again, this is a both right and left, uh, liberal and conservative. It's an up-down thing, not a right-left distinction. And, you know, if the people running our schools and running our newspapers and our other institutions are ambivalent about America, why would you expect newcomers to our society to enthusiastically embrace America? In a sense, uh, they're going through our public school system, and in uh, many ways they don't teach our kids that America is a good country. In fact, there's a lot of criticism of the country. Well, Mark, I also want to talk about the welfare state. I mean, we don't like to admit it, but we really are a welfare state. And I know that uh, during the debate over comprehensive immigration reform like a year or more ago, the Heritage Foundation came out with this picture that I think was a great picture. They said that uh, really our uh, taxpayers are forced to give the equivalent of a free Mustang to every uh, illegal immigrant family every year uh, in terms of benefits, because they usually tend to be poor. So this, in a sense, is different, because we were not a welfare state uh, in earlier generations. Right, exactly. And um, we actually worked with uh, Heritage Foundation on their uh, on their estimates, and we're still working with them now, and it's a very powerful image. I mean, he added it up, found a price of a car, and, you know, we give him a free car, essentially, or the equivalent mm-hmm. of a free car every year. But the problem is not that the immigrants are ripping us off. It's, as you suggested, there was no welfare state a hundred years ago. So when people say, my grandpa from Sicily didn't get welfare, what's wrong with these immigrants today? You know, if your grandpa from Sicily came today, he might well be on welfare. Um, and uh, the problem here is not any kind of moral defect on the part of the immigrants. It's that they are a mismatch for our society, for our kind of modern society. They're 19th century immigrants coming into a 21st century high-tech 
economy, and they just can't earn enough money, no matter what they do, to be able to support their families without subsidies from the taxpayer. And that's true even with Americans with very low education. But Americans are our people and therefore our responsibility. Immigrants, until we let them in, aren't. And we have to decide, do we want to keep letting in such large numbers? We get to decide that, although some people uh, are wondering about that since so many come in illegally. My guest again is Mark Krikorian. His new book is The New Case Against Immigration, Both Legal and Illegal. Mark, how would we make this change? What are the practical ways in which we could actually basically have a moratorium or or a halt, almost a, almost a complete halt, on both kinds of immigration? Well, on legal immigration, it's a lot simpler to, to see, you know, how to do it, because legal immigration is just a federal government program like farm subsidies or anything else, and you could just, you know, end it, change it, double it, cut it, whatever you want to do. So there, what I would suggest is not zero legal immigration, but zero-based budgeting. In, in immigration. In other words, you start at zero and then decide which very narrowly defined groups of people are so important to let in that we let them in despite the problems immigration can create for a modern society. But it has to be in our own best interest. Right, exactly. Um, and, but, but there's always competing interests, too, and trade-offs. So um, the uh, first category that would make up most of the people who should be let in is husbands, wives, and little kids of American citizens. That's not even really debatable, in my opinion, right. but as long as you know, they're legitimate marriages and everything. Uh, but that's still 250 or 300,000 people a year. That's a lot of people. And then a handful of real Einsteins, if you will, top people on the planet, maybe 10 or 15,000 a year, and then maybe 50,000 genuine refugees who, for whom America is the absolute last option. Um, you end up with, say, 300 or 350,000 immigrants a year. That's you know, that's not nothing. That's more than the average over the past. It's not nothing, but it is practically compared to what we have now. Right, exactly. It's something like 75% less than uh, the immigration we receive now. Illegal immigration, of course, everybody's against it, but it's a harder nut to crack, but it's not that hard really. Um, Would this make it easier if you're if you're removing the distinction between legal and illegal? Say that again? Would it make it easier to stop illegal immigration if we remove the distinction? No, I don't think so, because the distinction is important. Uh, it's not all that important when you think about the consequences of immigration, whether it's on the economy, the welfare state, etc. But, I mean, the obvious difference is legal immigrants that we have let in, say, last year, uh, whatever the reason, whatever the problems with that legal immigration policy, maybe it should have been different, but it wasn't. And those people followed the rules. They're here, and that's you know, there's no, there in no way should they be held responsible for our mistake and policy. Illegal immigrants, on the other hand, it's obviously a different thing. It doesn't matter how long they're here; they're still lawbreakers and shouldn't be allowed. And um, the biggest thing that would matter there, that would make a difference, is uh, phasing in a requirement that all businesses, when they hire new people, use an online system that exists now voluntarily to verify Social Security numbers and names. Uh, my own center uses it. It's very fast, it's very quick, and it's very hard for illegals to get jobs at places that use that. 
Mark Krikorian is the go-to guy on immigration research. He will stay with us over the break, and we're going to open this up for you to call and ask questions about this idea. Should there be sort of a lengthy pause on all immigration, legal and illegal, and then we sort of focus on making Americans out of those already here? That's what Mark Krikorian is recommending. Our number, 800-881-9270. Let's have a discussion with you. We're going to continue to make this case with Mark Krikorian right after this. You're listening to Jerry Johnson Live. Now, here's Penna Dexter. I marched with you in the streets of Chicago. I fought for you in the Senate. And I will make it a top priority in my first year as President of the United States of America. Barack Obama's top priority would be legalizing uh, the illegals, uh, really sort of an amnesty for illegal immigrants. He was speaking with La Raza, and the folks there at that National Council in San Diego, I'm sure they wouldn't be too thrilled with this idea that we're talking about today, and it's uh, really in the new book, uh, The New Case Against Immigration, both Legal and Illegal by Mark Krikorian, talking about the fact that uh, really we've got to control the flow into this country. And it's not just the flow of illegals. It's the whole idea of immigration. We're a different nation than we were when our forefathers came here. And perhaps we've passed this stage. This is what Mark Kokorian is saying, and we want to know what you think about it. 800-881-9270. Mark, if we don't control the flow, what happens to this country in terms of, let's say, our sovereignty, first of all? Well, that's actually a serious problem that people have not really uh, looked at. Um, what we're seeing now with high levels of immigration, and it's mostly, it's, we're seeing it mostly with Mexico just because they're the top country and they're also next door, but it doesn't, it's not exclusive to them, is that immigration is actually eroding American sovereignty, where not, it's not the issue of, um, uh, you know, people imagine that uh, Mexican immigration is going to cause, help Mexico take Texas back or something like that. The lines of the map are never going to change. What is, though, changing right now is the power relationships where Mexico acquires more and more authority and gets more and more involved in even state level and even local level government and politics, uh, lobbying state legislators, twisting the arms of county sheriffs to accept the Mexican government's illegal alien ID card, all kinds of things like that. And where that leads, again, is not that Texas, go, you know, is good given back to Mexico. Rather, the governor of Texas will have two federal governments to answer to. One's in Washington, one's in Mexico City. And again, conceivably, we're not there yet, but conceivably where this would go is the governor of, say, Texas or California has to check with the Mexican foreign ministry before he's allowed to sign bills um, that affect Mexicans or Mexican-Americans or any Hispanics. And um, you know, it's not, it may sound fanciful, but, and it's not like the Constitution will be rewritten, but it will become a practice that everybody does that changing would be considered, you know, hostile or in, improper. And, you know, that's, that's, that is not how you defend your country's sovereignty. And it's not because Mexico here is even the problem, it's because we permit it. 
Mexico can't do that kind of thing, using immigration to piggyback its expansion of its sovereignty in the United States. It only happens because we permit it to happen. Uh, could you just sort of uh, reverse this and say, uh, okay, Mexico is a wealthy country in terms of natural resources. Uh, there's some reason why people want to come here. Couldn't we just turn around help Mexico both uh, financially and just in terms of programs so that they can become a successful country and their folks don't want to come here? Well, I, you know, hopefully, yes, it sounds good. Yeah, it sounds I mean, great. Mexico, like you said, is rich in resources and agricultural land, and it's, you know, it's people there. I mean, you know, there's a lot of energetic, imaginative people there. It's not even money that's the problem, because some of the wealthiest people in the world uh, live in Mexico. The problem is a dysfunctional social and political order uh, where there's a kind of oligarchy that rules the country. They have very high level of economic inequality, very low level, for instance, of tax payments by the wealthy, by anybody. I mean, the, the, so that you can't, the government can't, doesn't have money then to spend on schools. Extraordinary levels of corruption. And those are really not things that we can fix for them. I mean, we do and should wish Mexico well, but, you know, those kind of things are not things that we can impose on them. They have to grow up and change their society. And when they do that, Mexico will actually be in, could very well be in pretty good shape. And our policy of letting Mexicans move here in such large numbers, very large numbers, one out of 10 people born in Mexico lives in the United States now, actually helps that oligarchy keep control because the people with you know who are who are sort of frustrated and want to change things they all leave and they move to LA and Chicago instead of changing things in their own country so right now we're enabling the dysfunction let's take some calls uh, let's see Estelle is in Garland Estelle you're on with Mark Krikorian hi how are you great um, I've been just listening for a little bit I just I'm on my way home but um, basically I'm just calling to kind of give a different perspective um, I am a first-generation Mexican-American, and um, my parents, you know, uh, came here to the United States, just like everyone else does from Mexico. Um, and basically, um, you know, my opinion is... Did uh, you come legally? Be, I'm sorry? Did you come legally? No, I'm, I was born here. In, oh, okay, you were born Wyoming, here. Texas, yes. Okay. <laughs> um, but yes, I, I agree with uh, Mark's, you know, idea about just completely stopping immigration and letting us, you know, that we're already here, kind of prove from, you know, our culture and from our, you know, that we can actually be, you know, productive citizens and that we actually have the capacity to be educated and, um, you know, pr uh, provide, you know, the economic growth to the United States and just just let us thrive, you know, and, and it's, t it's time that we get that chance. Mark, this is exactly what you want to encourage, isn't it? I want to encourage that among people whom we've already let in, absolutely. I mean, there's no question that those legal immigrants and their families that have that are already here, that issue that that issue is closed. I mean, we in fact one of the reasons we need to limit future immigration is precisely so that the immigrants and their children that are already here have a chance in a modern society like ours to advance because in the kind of post-industrial, knowledge-based economy we have, there's plenty of jobs for low-skilled workers, but they do not and cannot offer the same kind of 
opportunities for upward mobility if we tighten the labor market by taking in fewer low-skilled workers from abroad those who are already here immigrants or native-born americans are all going to have a better shot at economic advancement the question is always not you know do we somehow point fingers or complain about legal immigrants we've already let in that's that's over that's finished once they're here the question is what do we do tomorrow you know there's a sense in which i can just listening to estella and you know her attitude toward this it makes me think that if we did this we would suddenly just take away all this animosity and hostility that's been bubbling and we could actually do something positive and begin to you know have a have a sort of a, a trajectory that's good yeah i think so i mean a lot of ordinary members of the public are so frustrated at the political classes refusal to uh, you know acknowledge this as a problem and do something about it they 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 just get angry and often get angry at immigrants now illegal aliens you know they don't really have that much to complain about although even there everything has to be done lawfully and in an orderly fashion but you know you can't blame yesterday's legal immigrants for yesterday's immigration policy we set that congress the president opinion leaders at newspapers and elsewhere that's who has to be held responsible and that's who whom we need to you know pressure in order to get better policy the legal immigrants we've already let in are really i mean it's it's them among others that we're trying to um, help by limiting tomorrow's immigration so again we're not talking about deporting massive numbers of people i mean the only people that would need to be worried is those who are committing crimes in the country. Let's go to another caller very quickly. Mike in Arlington, what do you think of this idea, a pause on immigration, both legal and illegal? Well, uh, thanks for taking my call. And uh, we filed papers back in 1989. We waited nine years just to get a letter in the mail saying the case was denied because of a technicality and we had no chance for appeal. Where did so, you come from? Well, my wife's daughters are trying to come from Guatemala. And so <clears throat> I think um, certainly your your idea of developing what's here is good, but I just wanted to voice my concern about the inefficiency of the current um, immigration group. and Our inefficiencies in our system now? Sorry? The inefficiencies in our system currently. Oh, yeah. We've waited, like I said, we waited nine years just to get a letter saying, sorry, you've been denied when we approached them time after time and said, how's it going? Is everything okay with the petition? Mm-hmm. Yes, let me let later. Mark comment since we're running up on the end of the segment. Mark, go ahead. Uh, well, there's no question that the Immigration Service uh, often makes the, you know, the uh, Motor Vehicle Administration look efficient and customer-friendly. But, you know, we often blame the bureaucrats, and the problem is not that. The problem is that the immigration service is choking on immigration what we need to do is narrow its mission and then fund properly for efficient service because people following the rules should get expeditious service you won't have this problem the problem is we've got way too many categories too many people and and a bureaucracy that cannot cope with the workload and is never going to be able to cope with this kind of workload and you end up with problems like this caller is describing. 
It's a very interesting idea, and I'm sure, Mark, that this is going to be part of the public policy debate that takes place uh, ongoing. And we appreciate you thinking through this, all of your good research, your book, and thanks for joining us today. Well, thanks for having me. And people who want to learn a little more about the book can go to our website at cis.org. CIS.org. That's Mark Krikorian. Mark, thanks a lot. And I recommend the book, The New Case Against Immigration. It's got a lot of great facts, and I know that there's a lot of people out there very concerned about this issue. Well, next up, we're going to hear uh, some of the uh, thoughts of uh, presidential candidate Barack Obama. What is his plan for Iraq? Does he want to get us out as quick as he said he did before? I think so. Stay tuned for that. I've got a full-time job and a family, and I'm also getting a master's degree at Criswell College. The new Mac at Night program offers evening block courses for a Master of Arts in Counseling degree. It's so convenient and fits my busy lifestyle as a mom and a professional. Mac at Night offers licensure and non-licensure programs so you can gain ministry knowledge and even prepare for a doctorate. Mac at Night professors are at the top of the Christian counseling field. And Criswell College is partnered with a number of ministries, so you'll get experience and great contacts. My friends and family are so excited to see me back in school with the Mac at Night program at Criswell College. A Master of Arts in Counseling has never been so convenient. Come on, join me for Mac at Night. For more details, call 800-899-0012 or visit criswell.edu. Invest in God's kingdom and in yourself through the Chriswell College. See us on the web at chriswell.edu. That's chriswell.edu. You're listening to Jerry Johnson Live. Now here's Penna Dexter. This means that the only thing standing between the American people and these vast oil resources is action from the U.S. Congress. That's President Bush, and uh, he has decided to lift the executive ban on offshore drilling. He's really thrown the ball into the court of Congress. Now, a month ago, Mr. Bush said he would lift the executive ban, which was actually put in place by his father in 1990. Uh, He said that he would lift this after Congress acted. Uh, But yesterday, he changed his mind. He changed tactics. And this puts pressure on congressional Democrat leaders. They already are feeling the heat from voters on this drilling issue. And people are changing their mind all over the place. I saw a piece that said uh, that the environmental organization that in 1969 formed itself to basically oppose drilling off the coast of California back then in 69 is actually now advocating drilling off the coast of Santa Barbara because they're feeling the pinch uh, from gas prices and fuel prices. But Mr. Bush uh, spoke in the Rose Garden and his remarks actually drew scorn from some Democrats, uh, people saying that it was a political stunt that he is now reversing his position. Uh, It is a political move because he's wanting to, again, put pressure on the United States Congress. And uh, he did say that Congress needs to act on offshore drilling to reduce dependence on foreign oil. The sooner Congress lifts the ban, the sooner we can get these resources from the ocean floor to the refineries to the gas pump. And uh, we may not get that uh, tomorrow, but I think it will uh, reduce pressure on prices and on the speculators' uh, sort of expectations of what prices will be in the future. Uh, Let's go to another issue, though, because Barack Obama made a speech on Iraq, and uh, we heard him a couple of weeks ago say that he was going to go to Iraq. He will be going. 
and he was going to observe what's going on on the ground there. He was going to talk with the military leaders, and he might tweak his plan, which he's been very clear on. He said, though, that in this speech, he was pretty strong uh, in seemingly staying with his previous position. He said the war in Iraq has cost the U.S. more than just money. This war diminishes our security, our standing in the world, our military, our economy, and the resources that we need to confront the challenges of the 21st century. This speech took place in Washington, D.C. He says that the war in Iraq has been a costly mistake. We've lost thousands of American lives, spent nearly a trillion dollars, alienated allies, neglected emerging threats, all in the cause of fighting a war for well over five years in a country that had absolutely nothing to do with the 9-11 attacks. Now, this kind of talk is the exact reason why Barack Obama is the nominee right now. Uh, because the Democrats in the party, the anti-war folks there, were very excited about this type of a position. And he seemed to be changing it uh, a few weeks ago, but he's not now. They nominated this man who reflects uh, what Rich Lowry of National Review and Real Clear Politics says is the Democrat Party's new anti-factual consensus on the war. Uh, that really basically Democrats, liberal Democrats, anti-war Democrats, and Barack Obama being their leader, has ignored changing conditions on the ground. We thought he might be looking at those and tweaking his plan, uh, but this speech does not show that. Barack Obama said that the war in Iraq does nothing to enhance U.S. security. Our single-minded and open-ended focus on Iraq is not a sound strategy for keeping America safe. It's amazing because he did say uh, that uh, the surge would not work. That was his prediction. And then in recent days, he said that everybody knew the surge would work. <laughs> uh, so one of those is not true. But Obama in early 2007 said that nothing in the surge plan would make a significant dent in the sectarian violence. That has proved not to be true. It's worked. Now he says he knew it would work. Uh, but he has not changed his position on getting our troops out in 16 months, uh, which has been his plan all along. He said Iraq has little to do with the war on terror. As should have been apparent to President Bush and Senator McCain, the central front in the war on terror is not Iraq, and it never was. A lot of people differ with that, and we have to go back to uh, the decision-making time when we actually went into Iraq, and Douglas Fife, who was Under Secretary of Defense for Policy from 2001 to 2005, has written a book about it recently. He's trying to remind Americans why we took up this challenge, and the book that he wrote is called War and Decision, Inside the Pentagon and the Dawn of the War on Terrorism. This book has been quoted... Uh, extensively by one of our frequent guests here on the program, Frank Gaffney. Uh, we talked to him about it. Uh, we would love to get Douglas Fyth on, and I may be continuing to try to do that. But he makes the point that Saddam Hussein was a threat well before 9-11. And really, if you've been paying attention, you know that. As a matter of fact, the administration's case against Saddam Hussein included his wars against Iran and also Kuwait back in the early 90s. And, of course, he provided training and safe haven for terrorists. And he was developing weapons of mass destruction. And we found out recently that uh, there was uh, the yellow cake uh, enriching um, uh, material that enriches uranium actually in Iraq. It just wasn't made public. 
Uh, it couldn't be because uh, leaders were afraid that it was actually going to be uh, compromised. And I can talk about that a little bit later. But that whole uh, flap over yellow cake uh, uranium, actually the Bush administration knew they had that. And it was uh, it was in existence. And Saddam was developing weapons of mass destruction and making it more possible that he would have nukes in the near future. Also, you've got to remember that he used chemical weapons on Iran and also on the Iraqi Kurds. And, and then on 9-11, when those attacks happened, you heard the Iraqi press praising those attacks. We forget that. Uh, this really rendered more troubling the threat uh, posed by Saddam Hussein and the Bush administration then uh, began serious consideration, even as they were going into Afghanistan and looking for Osama bin Laden, of also going into Iraq and taking care of that problem. You've also got to remember that uh, after 9-11, those dangers and risks that we knew about in our intelligence regarding Iraq's weapons program, they became less tolerable because of 9-11. And of course, there were years of diplomacy and UN sanctions. And finally, we just despaired that the United Nations would actually enforce those many resolutions against Iraq. So the Bush administration acted. And we also have to remember that this was with the support of Republicans and Democrats in the United States Congress. And Iraq is not the only battlefield in this struggle to subdue the Islamic jihadist enemy. We've got to look toward Iran now. Our next steps are crucial, and an Obama presidency will make the war on terror much more more difficult. Ladies and gentlemen, I want to mention uh, that tomorrow Dr. Barry Creamer will be back here in the studio, and it's going to be a very interesting program because emergent pastor Doug Paget will be joining him. Barry Creamer is going to take him on. Doug Paget has a sort of a different kind of Christianity that he is proposing. He says that 21st century believers are alienated. He's got a book out called A Christianity Worth Believing, and uh, he is not espousing the version of Christianity that uh, most evangelicals believe right now. Dr. Creamer is uniquely qualified to take him on. He's going to do that tomorrow, so join us then. You've been listening to Jerry Johnson Live, a Christian worldview radio show. Join Dr. Jerry Johnson, president of Criswell College and Criswell Communications, Monday through Friday at 5 p.m. for an hour of relevant discussion of news and culture from a Christian perspective.